right, we are back. We kind of gave up for a while on doing obituaries in this program, but um, I think we have to do one today. We, we are, by the way, intending to go forward with um, some internet only or internet version, I guess you'd say, of, of Radio Parallax, where we, we basically catch up on lives worthy of being noted. But we find uh, the subject of the death of Jean-Claude Baby Doc Duvalier somewhat irresistible. But I must say, the death of Jean-Claude Baby Doc Duvalier brings to mind that famous Clarence Darrow quote, which is, I've never killed a man, but I've read many obituaries with great pleasure. And, uh, well, I just have to admit, it's hard not to read about the death of Baby Doc and not get at least some degree of satisfaction from the fact that that guy's now dead. He was born in Port-au-Prince in 1951, six years before his father was elected president. His father was Francois Papadoc Duvalier, a man who constructed a merciless security apparatus to remain in power. The machinery of terror that was set up by Papadoc was reinforced by Tonton Makuts, bogeymen, armed with sugar-hatching machetes. Jean-Claude grew up without much interest in the inner workings of the palace, according to the Washington Post. He spent his teenage years racing as Harley-Davidson and partying with the Haitian elite on his million-dollar yacht. But in 1971, the ailing Papa Doc named his son the next president for life. Of course, it's not like Haiti was some absolute monarchy. They did put that proposal before the public by means of a referendum. The final count, if you're keeping score, was 2,391,916 to 1. So I guess no one could ever argue that there's not a viable political opposition in Haiti. In fact, two months later, Papa Doc died, and 19-year-old Baby Doc became the youngest head of state in the world. Guided by his influential mother, Simone, Baby Doc succeeded in temporarily stabilizing Haiti's economy. He did this primarily by currying favor with the U.S. and securing aid payments from the West. But, like father, like son, Duvalier skimmed most of the aid money for himself, leaving hundreds of thousands of Haitians to starve to death. Reportedly, he treated those who opposed his rule less severely than his dad, but he was still responsible for a series of gruesome atrocities. Under his regime, the Tonton Makuts left thousands of people, if not more, dead, disappeared, or illegally detained. According to The Guardian in the UK, in 1980, Duvalier made a serious and eventually fatal political error. He married Michel Benet, a member of the light-skinned upper class whose members his father had killed, arrested, or otherwise subdued. Shortly after the couple's extravagant $5 million wedding, Bennett had her mother-in-law expelled from the presidential palace and set about alienating all sides. She dominated cabinet meetings and appalled Haitians by openly going on shopping orgies in Paris. Tensions within the country grew, food riots and looting broke out, and by 1985 the regime had lost control of the provinces. It's curious to note that when uh, Baby Doc and his wife Michelle left into exile in France, they flew out on an American plane. Noted the economist, he was not a friend America wanted, yet he was useful, a source of dirt-cheap, non-unionized labor for American businesses which swarmed into Haiti in the 1970s. Rather amazingly, when Michel divorced Baby Doc in 1981, he got left with very limited funds. Said the economist, Michel had taken all the money, 
Haiti's money, and he was living in two borrowed rooms. Duvalier shocked Haiti in 2011 by returning to the country, claiming he wanted to help after the devastating 2010 earthquake. He was charged with numerous crimes dating back to his time in power. A Haitian judge found all charges against him voided by the expiration of the statute of limitations. It can be noted that Duvalier remained unrepentant for the widespread suffering he caused. At the end of his life, he was asked what mistakes he had made during his rule. His reply, perhaps I was too tolerant. And you know who ought to weigh in on this? Louis Armstrong. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. You know you've done me wrong. You stole my wife and gone. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. Talk about it, Jordan. Talk about it. All right, we got eight or nine minutes left on today's program. Let's just kind of go to the grab bag here. Here's one that gets my attention. Headline, Drug Czar, Teen Pot Use Could Fuel Opioid Abuse. Well, why stop there? Why not lead to zombieism? Now, of course, there's been a national hysteria about alleged prescription uh, opiate overuse, and, and I'm sure there has been an unfortunate upswing. About 10 or 15 years ago, uh, medical authorities, at least in the state of California, realized that doctors were not treating patients in pain. They were not treating patients in pain because there were so many hoops to jump through and prosecutions by the DEA and harassment from law enforcement if you were a a pill-pushing doctor. Now, I'm here to tell you, there are pill-pushing doctors out there. I can name names if I didn't mind getting sued. But for the most part, pain is undertreated. Yes, it's true people get hooked on opiates. They're very addicting. They're kind of like one of the, you know, poster boys for addiction. Although, although opiates are less addicting, in fact, than cigarettes. So it was on October 6th of, uh, of this month. How long ago is that? Just a few days ago, really, that uh, the Bright Sparks at uh, the DEA and the FDA, I guess, got together and decided to make hydrocodone Vicodin, etc., a Schedule II drug, which puts it in the same class as Percodan, Percocet, Oxycontin, etc. The consequences of this are that it'll be more difficult to prescribe these medicines, more difficult to get refills. So, I mean, surprise, surprise, America's drug czar is now trying to claim that teen pot use is going to just going to feed right into this whole national epidemic we're allegedly in the middle of. The drug czar in question is Michael Botticelli, acting director of the White House's Office of National Drug Control Policy. He was quoted last week as saying, It's hard to say at one level that we want to think about prescription drug abuse and heroin abuse without looking at how to prevent kids from starting to use other substances from an early age. Yeah, Mr. Botticelli, how about alcohol and cigarettes? Are those not, in fact, our gateway drugs? Really? I mean, come on. He signed him notes that Botticelli, who himself battled addiction years ago, said he was introduced to alcohol at an early age and battled alcoholism before giving it up more than 20 years ago. Hello? I think you're familiar with this story, sir. His quote is saying, My personal story is very illustrative of what we see with people who go on to significant addiction in later life. Botticelli went on to add that prescription drug abuse and heroin abuse are intertwined. Mr. McMillan... 
You know, I'm not saying there's not some correlation between prescription drug abuse and heroin abuse, but I've been in medicine for 30 years. And I got to tell you, I don't see that as a very tight link. You know, I'm not saying there isn't somebody out there who found his way into heroin, uh, you know, after taking Vicodin. But, you know, most people, 95% of us, don't have addictive personalities. They can use pain pills when they need them, and they don't have these terrible complications. I'm pretty sure my late father wouldn't mind me telling the story of how, in the last years of his life, he needed pain control. He had cancer. He needed some way to suppress the pain that would otherwise make his life miserable. So they gave him a device that he could wear on his belt that would inject morphine into his veins on a regular basis and a little extra dose when he needed it. Now, does that mean that my dad and others like him were made into morphine addicts at the end of their life? Well, yeah, I guess you could argue that they were. But then you have to ask, what's the greater evil? Dying in excruciating pain or being dependent upon an opiate? This is something we will continue to talk about. Now, we've also talked in this program about what's going on down in the Florida Everglades, which is that Burmese pythons are eating their way through all of the wildlife. So I was a bit struck by a headline from an article I pulled out of the archives, not that far back in the archives, January of 2011, but the headline was, Snake Owners Stung by U.S. Proposals to Ban Invasive Species piece by Leslie Coffin in the New York Times noted that until recently, Jeremy Stone lived happily in Linden, Utah with his wife and four children and an annex full of baby ball pythons and boa constrictors. Peace notes that the Stone family shares a passion for slithering pets, but like many snake lovers, Stone has been seething at the U.S. government since early last year when it sought to ban the importation and interstate transportation of nine species of foreign snakes. Wow. The Federal Fish and Wildlife Service said the animals, if freed, posed a serious risk to native ecosystems across the southern United States. Said Stone, of the science behind the government's decisions, it's a joke. Let's take uh, Mr. Jeremy Stone and his whole family and send them on a vacation down to the Everglades. They'll be given a tent, a flashlight, all the camping gear they need and invited to go out and spend some time with <laughs> the Burmese pythons. The piece notes that Burmese pythons, some thought to be dumped by pet owners and some that escaped, were establishing themselves across the Everglades where they were swallowing up everything from the endangered Key Largo wood rats to alligators. The population has been expanding northward at three and a half to six miles a year. In recent years, Florida officials have taken significant steps to limit ownership of invasive snakes within the state, but still wanted more to be done. Yes, it's good to get out there and close that barn door after the horses are out. All right, and final item, it's political season. We're going to have an election coming up soon. We're going to talk about uh, the truly colossal fraud out there of Proposition 46. Boy, talk about the controversy over prescription drug abuse. Just keep in mind that First line from the Hippocratic Oath, first, do no harm. The, the, the cure should not be worse than the disease. But I'll have more to say about Prop 46 as we get closer to election time. As we close, I want to focus on a fake candidacy. Apparently, candidate Joe King is running for governor. He bears a rather uncanny resemblance to the Sacramento Bee's cartoonist, Jack Ullman. To quote from his column, 
When I announced my candidacy for governor of California on August 4th, I knew the challenges would be huge. Not being a real person was but one formidable obstacle. But as I pretended to travel around California, pretending to run for governor, I can tell you in an unctuous manner about the many problems the state faces and the phony prescriptions I offer to address these issues. Of course, we have to note that in pretending to travel around California, pretending to run for governor, how far off the mark is he, really? I mean, we pretend that Gavin Newsom's our lieutenant governor, don't we? Anyway, in the minute and a half we got left, I just want to quote from the piece. Oman notes that, first of all, my candidacy is about leadership in the 21st century and the children. My consultants say people like to hear that candidates are about children and not consultants. Let's look at the critical issues facing Californians and their children. Drought. We're running out of water. That's why I proposed a statewide commission to study water. Water is composed of two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. Furthermore, Governor Jerry Brown has done nothing to alter California's weather patterns, and I've heard nothing from Neil Kashkari about water. Or for that matter, the children. And regarding children... Kids come first, and that's why if elected, I'll create a sprawling new department devoted solely to children. It will be run by children, too, so we can more easily tell them what to do. And finally, economic development. The economy is important. Very. It contains money. And money is the key to any economy. For example, the current salary for the governor is $165,000. I pledge to you today that I will take that salary and plow it right back into California's economy the moment I take the oath of office. And that's good for California and California's children. We kind of hope this goes somewhere. Anyway, our thanks in today's program to our good pal, Dr. Gary Aguilar, and also to Professor Josiah Thompson. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, and I'm sad to note I was unable to read that quote from Mr. Gary Webb, but I will do so on next week's show. We'll see you then. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I wanna judge you.